Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Mark Twain is reported to have said that history doesn't really repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Today, we live in a climate not unlike the late 40s and early 50s, where fear is being weaponized, where suspicion of the other is exploited as a salve for dramatic change. Yet there always seem to be brave men and women trying to rise above and beyond. As Ed Murrow said in his takedown of Senator Joe McCarthy, we were not descended from fearful men. They were not men who feared to write or to speak, who again, in Murrow's words, did not confuse dissent with disloyalty. But fear is personal, visceral, and chilling when exploited by government. It undermines the very foundation of a democratic republic and sometimes of families. Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus makes it as personal as it can be in the story of his father and his family, caught up in the maelstrom of the Red Scare of the 1950s. David is an associate editor at the Washington Post, a visiting professor at Vanderbilt, and the best-selling author of biographies of Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Roberto Clemente, and Vince Lombardi. It is my pleasure to once again welcome David Marinus back to this program to talk about his new book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David Marinus, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure to talk with you. It's always great to have you here as, as a biographer when you're writing about famous people or public figures. There's always a basic public persona that you start with, a set of myths usually about that person. Talk a little bit about how it was different or similar as a starting point in writing about your father and your own family. You know, there are myths in every family as well. <laughs> um, mostly what we know about our family is what we've been told by our elders, and um, they're just uh, family stories that can be accurate or mythological or somewhere in between. Um, as you pointed out, I've written many biographies of well-known people in politics and sports, and for those books, i you know, even though there was a public persona, I generally approached as though I know nothing. You know, these people were were essentially strangers to me, their interior lives at least, um, before I started. And then over the course of three or four years of reporting, they became very familiar to me, and I figured I figured them out. In this case, I started with um, my parents, who were intimately familiar to me. And I was concerned that by the end, they would appear to be strangers. Um, you know, after I did my reporting, my father always taught me to search for the truth wherever it takes you. And I knew in this case, because of my parents' history, that it would take me to some uncomfortable places, um, both for them and for the country. Um, and that's exactly what it did, but I steeled myself for it. And, and I came out of it actually having a a clearer understanding of my parents, a stronger love for them, a, uh, a, uh, an optimism about the, the resilience of my family and this country despite everything, um, and despite, as you point out, the, uh, the uh, cycles of history and the echoes of the past today. With respect to his view of, of politics and your father's view of America, you were two years old when your father was, was informed on as a communist and, and went before the House Un-American Activities yeah. Committee. Obviously, at two, there wasn't a lot that you knew about it. How was what you understood about it growing up different than what you came to understand in doing all the research you did 
on this book? You know, by the time I was of a conscious age, my father had taught me to search for the truth wherever it took me and to not fall for any rigid ideologies. I knew that he had been called before the committee, uh, that he had been identified as a communist or former communist, that he'd been fired from his job. But that was really a, a shadow of our lives. By the time I was uh, seven years old, we had, he had gone through five years of blacklisting and survived that and arrived in Madison, Wisconsin, and really started a, uh, a revived life uh, from then on when I was conscious uh, as a successful newspaper man, not really talking about his past. So I knew about the shadows, but it wasn't until I researched this book that I knew um, the realities of, of his experience, uh, both as a young student at the University of Michigan in the late 1930s, which was in some ways uh, parallel or comparable to uh, the way young, uh, many young students uh, reacted to the world in the late 1960s, then through his period as a military officer in World War II and all the way up through his calling for the committee and firing in 1952. I, I, I came to understand that my father um, had been uh, sort of, as he called it, stubborn in his ignorance about the Soviet Union in particular for a time, um, and that he was motivated by idealistic, if naive, uh, thoughts. Of, uh, no, the thoughts were naive, but his, his acceptance of some things was. But he was motivated by the idealistic ideas of economic equality, racial justice, and uh, abhorrence of the rise of fascism in Italy and, and France and Nazism in Germany. Talk a little bit about that idealistic innocence that, that went on at places like the University of Michigan at the time, because as you say, it was very much a precursor to what we saw going on in the 60s. It was, um, you know, these young people had gone through uh, in their teenage years the Great Depression. They were still going through the recovery from that um, when uh, the whole notion of Capitalism was um, on the rocks to some degree um, and collapsing. Um, and during a period when segregation was uh, at its peak, and as I said, when the, when when the Europe, all these storm clouds were were gathering in terms of fascism and Nazism, and so um, there were a, a, a large number of ideas, idealistic young uh, students at the University of Michigan. Uh, my father arrived there in 1936 from Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn, um, which was a progressive high school um, where the principal walked around the halls of the school with a, a pocket edition of Emerson's essays mm -hmm. on America uh, in his back pocket. Um, there was a peace movement on that high school campus. Um, and my father came out of that to the University of Michigan, following, by the way, in the footsteps of Arthur Miller, the great playwright who also went to Lincoln and then to Michigan. Um, they, they both worked on the Michigan Daily, the, the great student newspaper at the, on the campus, and were influenced by the events of that, of that period and radicalized. And the same was true. Your mother was there on that campus as well and, and, and caught yeah. up to an extent in the politics. And in fact, your parents met on, on campus. It's an incredible story that I didn't really appreciate until I researched this book. 
My mother's older brother, Bob Cummins, um, was also on the Michigan Daily and a member of the Young Communist League at the University of Michigan. And the day after he graduated in June of 1937, he and two of his classmates, Elman Service and Ralph Nefus, the three of them took a boat across the Atlantic to France, took a train across France to the border with Spain, climbed over the Pyrenees Mountains, and fought for the loyalists in the Spanish Civil War against Franco and Hitler and Mussolini. Um, two of those three, including my uncle, survived. One of them, Ralph Nefus, was captured by Franco's troops, held in a cathedral in Alcanis, and executed. Um, the inter- they all fought for the International Brigade, and when the two surviving Michigan students came home late in 1938, um, they were hosted at the Michigan Union on campus. About 600 students came to honor them. One of those students uh, was a young townie, an 18-year-old named Mary Cummins, who was my mother. And uh, also there was Elliot Marinus, the editorial editor of the Michigan Daily, covering the event. And that's where my parents met. You know, it's 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 interesting in that as people look at this and and the Red Scare and the story, the investigations, which I want to talk to you more about, it's easy to look at those parallels to some of the things going on today. But the underside of that, the debate about capitalism coming out of the Depression, the issues of race, those things are, are repeat themselves as well as part of the political and American cycle that we see. I think the debate over uh, over economic systems is is always there in America, and it and it erupts and comes out in various ways. You know, from in some ways the the rise of Trump and the popularity of Bernie Sanders, um, and also uh, the issue of race is at the center of American life, and that too is is an element in the rise of Trump, um, and uh, so those those issues come around and around again in American life. You're absolutely right. The uh, the chairman of the committee that called my father un-American was a Southern racist, a congressman from Georgia who had voted against every civil rights bill that went through Congress and for the poll tax, and as a young man was a member briefly of the Ku Klux Klan. My father uh, in World War II became the commander of an all-black unit that went to Okinawa in the Pacific at the end of the war. And that uh, racist congressman was uh, judging my father as un-American. So it raises the question of what does it mean to be American and who decides? And raises this issue, which was so much a part of the debate in those days, and, and arguably again, about dissent versus disloyalty and what loyalty really means. You know, that's absolutely right, Jeff. And and I'm not, uh, in the book, I'm brutally honest about places where my what my father was saying and writing um, boggled my mind. And I was thinking, what were you thinking, Elliot? Um, uh, you know, in terms of even, you know, as a young student, uh, he, he wrote a, an editorial defending, uh, to some extent, um, the Nazi-Soviet pact in 1939, which is indefensible. Um So I'm not naive about the evils of the Soviet Union, and neither later was my father. Um, But he was not a secret agent. He was not a spy. He did not advocate the violent overthrow of the United States government. 
he had uh, controversial and perhaps wrong beliefs. But this country is founded on the civil liberties of freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of thought. And that was what was being a challenge during that area and had a specific disrupting effect on my father and my family. When people think about the House Un-American Activities Committee and its investigations and its attacks on people, they often think of it in, in the images they've seen of the hearing rooms in the Capitol. But in fact, the, the committee went on the road. Your father was questioned. Your father's story takes place in Detroit. Talk a little bit about that, David. That's absolutely right. Uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee um, held many hearings around the country. Um, uh, in Hollywood, where they went after screenwriters who were former members of the Communist Party, um, in New York City, where they went after certain um, aspects of the Broadway uh, world, um, in Cleveland and Chicago, and in Detroit, they came to Detroit primarily um, to investigate or go after or publicize and reveal uh, the communist socialist influences in the United Auto Workers Union. And what happened was that the FBI had uh, hired a, a, a woman, known later as the grandmother spy, to infiltrate the Michigan Communist Party. They hired her in 1943. She was a paid informant. She was not a disillusioned former member of the Communist Party, but someone whose job it was to infiltrate the party. She stayed undercover for the FBI from 1943 to 1952, and it was at those hearings in Detroit where she came in from the cold and named the names of hundreds of Communist Party members or former Communist Party members. The intent of the committee, as I said, was to, was to under, un, undo the Communist influence in the auto workers' union, um, but my father's name was on her list, and, and he was somewhat of collateral damage of that of those hearings in Detroit. And the moment she named his name, he was fired from his job at the Detroit Times, and our family began sort of five years of wandering around as he was blacklisted. When your father went before the committee, there was a statement that he was going to make, which he never got to give, that you found in, in your archival research on this. Talk a little about that. Finding that uh, statement was the most emotional moment of my uh, years of research. Um, the transcript of the hearings were a matter of public record, and I had read the transcripts years before and many times, and in the transcript, you see my father saying that he has a statement he would like to read about his definition of what it means to be American or un-American, as opposed to the committee's definition. And the chairman of the committee, that Southerner racist uh, John Stevens Wood um, denied him the chance to read that statement. He probably could have read it had he sought absolution from the committee, uh, confessed to his sins, and named names. But my father refused to do that, so the statement was not allowed to be read. It was submitted into the, re into the files of the committee and never looked at for 63 years until I found it when I went to the National Archives all of the HUAC records had been opened. There was a box of records of the uh, HUAC hearings on communism in the Detroit area. And within that, there was a file called Elliot Marinus. And the first thing I saw in there was his three-page statement. 
it's a very powerful statement um, that um, when I go around the country now on my book tour, I read it to give it life finally. Um, but what struck me first about it was not the words, but but um, the physicality of it on the page, because I knew my dad as a sloppy, uh, violent typist, uh, hunt and peck typist who was constantly um, mistyping and crossing out a letter and, and retyping over it. And he typed on an old manual typewriter and the keys would stick. And in this case, the uh, key stuck and the S in statement went up a half notch. Um, And when I saw that, I call it the imperfect S. When I saw that S uh, up a half notch for the first time in my long career life, you know, I was in my sixties. I actually felt what it might have been like in my father's shoes that moment when he was in the crucible of the most difficult period of his life. Before that, um, he had moved on. He didn't talk about it. I was focused on other things. I never really confronted the, the totality, the reality of what my father endured until I saw that F. And it just it was a little detail that just washed over me and made me for the first time, feel deeply what my father had gone through. If you had worked on this book or put this book out or had the opportunity to talk about it 10 years ago or 12 years ago, might it be different given the political climate and the political landscape today? I started the book before Trump. Um, It was not my intention to make it an allegory of the Trump era. Um, but history does come around again. So um, I think, uh, you know, almost in any era, you'll find elements of the themes of this story, whether it's the use of fear as a political weapon and questions about what it means to be American and who is American. It's certainly more profound now than ever. But as you'll remember, Jeff, I, I wrote a book about the Vietnam era and it came out, I started it before the Iraq war, but there are many echoes of that when my book, They Marched Into Sunlight, came out about uh, about war and peace and patriotism and all of those issues. So, so there's a, you know, history doesn't repeat itself exactly, but it, as you said, it does sort of rhyme and there's spiraling cycles of it that come around and around again. One of the things that it comes around, it's interesting because at one of the cable news channels last night, ironically, somebody was talking about, obviously, you know, what's going on in Washington today and talking about that there, are, there seemingly are no heroes. It's easy to look at this period in American history and not see heroes, but you kind of found one in Charles Potter. Talk about who he was. Charles Potter was a congressman from Michigan, um, a Republican who went off to fight in World War II, um, lost both legs fighting in the Colmar pocket after he'd survived the Battle of the Bulge, came back to Michigan as a Main Street Republican, a young veteran who, like many um, young Republican veterans, ran on a sort of a patriotic ticket of staunch anti-communism at that point, um, became a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee, was on the committee when my father was called before it um, and parlayed that essentially into a seat in the, in the U S Senate. He was elected uh, as a Senator from Michigan later that same year, then got on the, the uh, subcommittee uh, with Joseph McCarthy 
and really saw the manipulative uh, ways of McCarthy and his stretching of the truth and the irresponsibility and reckless charges he was throwing at various people, including um, army generals, and was instrumental to some degree in helping the Eisenhower administration fight against McCarthy and leading to his undoing and, and censoring in the Senate after the Army McCarthy hearings. And then 10 years later, uh, in the 1960s, uh, Potter wrote a book called Days of Shame, looking back on that era with a sense of, of regret and remorse over what had the Congress had allowed to happen in terms of McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee. And that book even includes a strong defense for the Fifth Amendment, the right not to testify against oneself, which my father invoked at his hearings, and which the committee in the 50s would, would use as a bludgeon of, of guilt. Um, and, and Potter later, in Days of Shame, came to understand its importance as a, as a right, part of the Bill of Rights, and the importance of civil liberties in America. So I don't know that I'd call him a hero, but I definitely, um, uh, you know, what I would say is where is the Charles Potter today? Right. Will it take 10 years for someone to write Days of Shame? <laughs> um, there were also Republican senators like Margaret Chase Smith of Maine who stood up to McCarthy. Who is the Margaret Chase Smith of today? How did your father not be angry for so many years? Talk about that. My father um, had a innate sense of optimism that I can't quite explain, but it was just his personality. So um, we were lucky. You know, a lot of families were not just disrupted by that era, but destroyed by it. And because of my father, and even as much or more so because of my mother, who was a very strong individual and believed deeply in keeping our family together, and she would buy a house wherever we moved as we were bouncing around, um, during those five years of blacklisting. But in any case, both of them allowed our family to survive. My dad came out of it um, largely because of he was a survivor and he was an optimist. And so many, I would say a lot of old leftists either turned into, because of events, uh, sort of neoconservative, strong, uh, obsessed by anti-communism, or disillusioned, embittered, people. And my father, luckily for me and my siblings and our family, uh, came out as neither, but as a, a open-minded liberal optimist who taught me all of the important lessons that I've tried to keep throughout my career to, you know, for instance, he, he would say, be open-minded, hate racism, not the racist. Don't fall for any rigid ideology and search for the truth. He also kept an appreciation, a patriotism, if you will, an appreciation for the country and constantly a desire to see it do better. Yeah, he wasn't, you know, the, the whole basis of the uh, Red Scare and the attacks on uh, American communists was that they prima facie uh, advocated the violent overthrow of the American government. And certainly that might have been the intent of a few, but it wasn't the intent of most, and certainly not of my father. You see throughout his writings, uh, first for the Michigan Daily, then the letters home to my mother when he was the commander of the all-black unit in World War II, this deep love for the country um, and a desire to, to make it better, um, not to overthrow it in any way. 
And finally, talk a little bit about where the title, A Good American Family, comes from. The title comes from Charles Potter, that Michigan congressman who, in 1951, shortly before these hearings, gave a speech in which he said that he was shocked that any member of a good American family could be enticed by communism or socialism. And when I saw that, I realized that had to be the title, that my family in every possible way was a good American family, Um, not dysfunctional, uh, believing in America, in the better values of America. Uh, You know, there are no criminals in the family. Um, All followed the the sort of the American dream. And, And so, you know, that was what I wanted to say, that some people have a narrow definition of what a good American family was, and I wanted to show another way of it. David Marinus, the book is A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Good to talk with you again. Thank you.